0: Today's interview contains the topic of drug addiction and substance abuse and is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised.
1: Hi, I'm Angela Spradlin from Atlanta, Georgia, and I homeschool my daughter who has special needs. I love listening to Compel because the stories show how God redeems our suffering and uses it to draw us close to Himself. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's episode.
0: I'm Paul Hastings, and you're listening to season four of Compelled, a seasonal podcast using gripping, immersive storytelling to celebrate the powerful ways God is transforming the lives of Christians around the world. Last week, our guest was Jim Payne, who in 2005 deployed to the Middle East as part of a Navy SEAL team alongside 15 of his closest friends and brothers in arms. While there, they experienced a terrible moment of tragedy and loss, where Jim was forced to cast his grief and anger on the Lord. You can hear that story by tuning into last week's episode with Jim Payne. Today, our guests are Fred and Casey Weymouth. Fred was once a successful insurance salesman, but became a homeless drug addict completely in bondage to heroin and other substances. Casey had a promising military career, but had become a hopeless alcoholic. And no matter how many recovery programs she went to, she always landed back at the bottom of a bottle. Both of them were desperately looking for their next fix, but could never find what they really wanted until they fixed their eyes upon Jesus. So lean in and join us for another compelling story from the kingdom of God. Back in the summer, I was traveling on the East Coast for work and collecting some podcast interviews while I was out there. There was a particular guest I was hoping to record, but at the last minute, the interview fell through. And that's always a bummer, but since I was already on the East Coast and I had the time, I decided to do some research and see if there were any believers nearby with a great testimony they'd like to share. And that's how I ended up discovering The Fix Ministry, a Christ-focused rehabilitation program for men suffering from drug addiction and substance abuse. And uniquely, this ministry is operated almost exclusively by former addicts and alcoholics. And that's where I found Fred and Casey's testimonies. They helped co-found The Fix Ministry in 2018 and play an active role in its day-to-day operations. So of course, I did the only logical thing and I made a cold call at the end of a Friday someone passed the phone to fred and i explained the situation that i was passing through town and was looking for great christian testimonies they didn't know me from the man in the moon and we had no mutual friends but we did serve the same good god and i wanted to know if they would share their testimonies and just like that they agreed three days later i pulled up onto the campus of the fixed ministry and it's a large single story house that used to be a hunting lodge We recorded our interview in a very spacious living room right across from the fireplace. And on either side of the house are rooms for the men going through the recovery program. It's intentionally located in the countryside and away from the city and many of the temptations those struggling with addiction have. It's about 30 miles east of Richmond, Virginia, where Fred grew up. So I was not brought
2: up um, in church. Um, They dabbled. They would go on Easter or Christmas. Um, I did have an experience at a, a tent revival, Old Baptist tent revival. I was very young. Uh, my father was invited by a client of his, so I think he went out of the necessity to, you know, do what it was asked to him by the guy that uh, he was writing his insurance for. But I heard this guy talk about sin, talk about repentance. And um, I did go to the altar broken that night. I did receive Jesus, but there was no follow-up. There was no church after that.
0: Did, did you think about God at all as a teenager a teenager?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I believed that there was a God. I did not understand who God was or what he was, or, but I knew there was something bigger than me. And I grew up thinking that my whole life. My father was a business executive, but he's also a partier. So, you know, I kind of grew up in a lifestyle that centered around, I guess, partying. Yeah. It's just something that I was accustomed to. So when I got into middle school, high school, um, I had trouble feeling like I was a part of or that I fit in. Um, I had trouble socially awkward with girls. So when i was introduced to alcohol i I gravitated towards it it kind of um let down my inhibitions my insecurities i was able to feel like i was a part of something and that kind of snowballed into a drug addiction going into some of these inner city places and scoring the the drugs where the people that i was in high school with were not you know I i was sexually molested as a child from a family member over a period of years Instead of uh, putting God in that situation, I was taking the God out and putting these substances to kind of put a salve on these wounds that I had. One day I was at a house party. Um, I'd already been introduced to alcohol and and, uh, marijuana. Um, Those were just things that were prevalent. Uh, A friend of ours had a vial of uh, powdery substance, dumped it on the table, I did it. I found out later on that that was heroin. You know, at that time in my life, heroin was my God. The drugs were my God. The alcohol was my God. Women were my God. I went to work for my father, uh, 18, and the insurance business did very well. I was a very good salesperson. But underneath of it, I still had this heroin addiction. Had gotten married. She was a partier as well. But I made enough money to sustain that lifestyle without any consequences.
0: Did your parents know that you were doing drugs? My my parents
2: knew uh, that I drank, that that I partied, like smoked marijuana. Um, but I don't think they had any idea of the depth of the heroin addiction yeah. at the time. I, I kept that very hidden. Yeah, It's like I was living two
0: different lifestyles. Now, while Fred was in Richmond and dabbling in drugs and eventually beginning his descent into full-blown addiction... Casey was 500 miles away in the heart of the Deep South and on a similar life trajectory.
3: So I grew up in a very rural area in Georgia called Sandersville, Georgia, very, very small town. Um, and, you know, we had, we grew up with biblical principles, biblical um, models. You know, we all said grace at dinner, but that didn't mean any of us really knew who Jesus was. We'd go to church on Easter and Christmas, but it wasn't really, we weren't followers. My dad was an alcoholic and um, a drug addict, and he actually um, died of a drug overdose when I was 20. I went through some sexual abuse when I was young. I was always trying to seek, like, my worth. I was seeking something to give me worth. I was seeking something to make me feel satisfied. It was food. I used food to cope with my emotions or my feelings and then as I got older it was denying myself food. I was anorexic when I was you know very young 13 years old and then I started um, being promiscuous and the attention of men and then I started dabbling with drugs and alcohol and by the time I was 18 I was a full-blown alcoholic. I did very well in school, but I knew if I went to college, I would party and fail. And so I joined the military right out of high school. I graduated in June, about August. I was in the army and I was stationed in Germany where the drinking age is like 16. Like if you can get to the bar and ask for a drink, you can have one. I learned how to maintain my alcoholism and be functional. I would drink till four or five o'clock in the morning and then fall in formation at six. And, and I did that for many years. And then I realized I gotta fix this. And um, I met my now ex-husband and um, we got married. We met in April, we were married in August. That just felt like, oh, well this will be that thing that gives me worth. This will be that thing. And it was many years of my life where I was just seeking something to give me that, well this is the thing that gives me worth. Um, and that didn't do it. And then I got out of the military and we came back to Virginia. Uh, which is where my ex-husband is from. I went to college, I did very well in college, I got a great job, I was working for the Federal Reserve Bank, and all those things that were should have given me worth, they didn't. Then I had my son, who is now 20, and that was it. You know, this is gonna be the thing. I loved him so much and he was just so perfect. And then when he was about three, um, he was diagnosed with autism. I got very angry at God because I stopped trying to fix me and I started trying to fix him. I started doing all the things. I mean, reading all the books, doing all the Google, doing all the podcasts, doing, you know, reading everything I possibly could to try to fix him. And now I can realize that he didn't need fixing. He was exactly, he's fearfully and wonderfully made, Mm. exactly the way God intended for him to be. But I couldn't see that because I didn't know Jesus during that time. And so I can remember really getting angry at God and saying, if this is, if this is what you're about, then I don't want anything to do with you. And like, I I made a conscious decision that I didn't want anything to do with God. And I started doing what I wanted to do and I lost my relationship with my ex-husband and I left him. Um, I lost my job at the Federal Reserve Bank. I lost um, all those things. And um, by the time, I guess about 2008, I went to rehab, I went to a 28-day program.
2: Working for my father, I I started to miss work because of my addiction, Um, wasn't showing up to work, would get uh, sick off not having heroin, would stay home. And I think my father knew at a point there was something majorly wrong. So, you know, he showed up at the apartment that my wife and I at the time were living at, my ex-wife now. Uh, He said, I know you've got issues. I know you've got a problem. Um, Let me get you some help. He took me to a 30-day rehab. Did Um, you want help? I wanted help because I I wanted not to lose everything that I had. The job, the family business, my relationships. So I I did the 30-day program, got out. My father picked me up, and he said, what do you think about the military? And if you knew my father, that wasn't like a question. It was a command. So I picked the Coast Guard, went in the Coast Guard. Just directly from rehab? Just straight out of rehab. I excelled in the Coast Guard. I did very well. I was honorably discharged. I was in four years active, uh, four years reserve, and four years inactive reserve. So it was 12 years total. But what I had done is I traded the heroin for alcohol. So I drank every day. They had, ba- you know, bars on base, 50-cent drafts. So I just uh, continued uh, in the, the addiction, but just another substance. Hmm.
0: You know, I was, I was filling that void with something else. For Fred, alcohol wasn't enough. After serving in the Coast Guard and the reserves for 12 years, he transitioned back to civilian life and immediately fell back into drugs. In that process, um, my father
2: got sick at 40, he was about 47, got cancer, died. I was angry at God for taking my father. I didn't understand it. I blamed him. My father and I at that point had gotten very close um, in relationship. And um, when, when he went, I got very bitter, almost on this self-destructive path. And in the process of that whole thing, I lost my now ex-wife. Um, I lost the family business. I lost everything that I owned. That's the point where I, I woke up one day after my ex-wife had gone taking our children and I had sold everything out of the house. Um, and it was just me and the bed and I had sold all our furniture. It was just the empty shell of a house. I was probably at about a four to five hundred dollar a day heroin addiction, um, and I was uh, stealing, and I was robbing, and I was doing whatever I could do to to support that that habit. And I, I got so high from the time I woke up to the time I went to sleep. I, I have a hard time recalling time frames. It was just it's just one long blur. Or so I knew I needed help at that point i don't know if it was self-realization desperation hopelessness in and out of programs uh, kicked out of programs breaking rules um, back in the street i got to a point of homelessness i put some time together um through in that process Um, i got about a year clean through narcotics
0: anonymous that's where um i met her for the first time fred and casey hit it off at the moment they were both sober and were just friends but within months, their relationship would deepen and their soberness would fall to the wayside. That story coming up after the break. My friends Kristen Clark and Bethany Beale have been longtime listeners of Compelled and run a ministry for young women called Girl Defined. Besides their podcast and other online content, they've also written several books for young women and their latest book released last week and is called Not Part of the Plan. You know, I don't know about you, but the last year and a half have been crazy and not much has gone according to my plans and not part of the plan. Kristen and Bethany open up their lives to other women in the most raw and relatable way, sharing their own journeys through unexpected seasons of infertility, singleness, loss and heartbreak. But in the midst of it all, they've learned that true hope doesn't come from getting the life that you've always dreamed of but instead from trusting God with the life that He has designed for you and believing that His plans truly are good. Wherever you are in your journey, your life has purpose and meaning in Christ, and thriving is possible right now. Grab your copy of Not Part of the Plan today at girldefined.com or on Amazon. Learn more at girldefined.com. Again, that's girldefined.com. Welcome back to Compelled. When we left off, Fred and Casey had just met each other at a Narcotics Anonymous Support group meeting in November 2008. A few months later, they went on their first date to get tattoos with each other, and by March 2009, they had moved in together.
3: We both relapsed after about a year of being together. He relapsed, I relapsed around the same time, and we were on heroin together. It was insane. And things got real real rough, real toxic, physical, mental, emotional, sexual, all kind of abuses, all kind of toxicities, anything you could imagine. It was there. It was, um, I mean, he spent some time in jail for us, like having physical altercations. And I'm not just talking about some pushing each other around. We fought each other like two men for the next five or six years. It was just, um, it was the closest thing to hell either of us could have imagined.
2: Uh, me and her got gotten in an argument. I tore her house up uh, drunk one evening. And she kicked me out um, and, and I had to walk and I had nowhere else to go. So I, I made uh, this little camp behind a Valero in the woods. And I had gotten in that point to a point of brokenness to a point where I had cr- it's the first time since my father had passed away years before that I had cried out to God. Um, when my father passed, I got so angry with God, I physically walked outside and told God to go away. I told him to get away from me. I said some, some really bad stuff. But that night I lay down in those woods and I, I asked God to let me die. <laughs> I had fully given up. I gave up at that point. I couldn't go on anymore. I had, had everything a man could want in his life and it was all gone.
3: The only job that I could maintain was a job bartending and that's just because I could still get high and go to work and I can remember getting off work at about 2 a.m. one night and I'm outside the bar and I have enough money in my pocket to either get a hotel room or get high and I decided I was gonna get high and then I had nowhere to stay because I had lost I had lost my house. I had lost my car. I lost everything. So I had absolutely nothing. And I decided that, you know, I I can't do this. I cried out to God and, you know, I said, look, if you're there, you got to do something. You got to change me. I can't continue on this path. I can't fix me. And i wouldn't say it's not like abracadabra or anything magical but i started to think differently you know the scriptures in romans where it talks about being transformed by the renewing of your mind i knew that i had to leave i had to just get you know get away from what i was doing and i knew jesus was the answer
0: you knew jesus was the answer i knew jesus was the answer how did you know that jesus was the answer
3: well i can say that my mom came to know the lord when i was about 15 or 16 years old and she was always pouring into us. And it was like, nah, I'm good, I'm good. You know, and so even in the depths of my addiction, my mom knew I was struggling and she was in Georgia and I was in Virginia and she would send me worship music. She'd send me Bible verses and I'm talking, I was in the middle of some really debaucherous stuff and I'd get a Bible verse on my phone and ignore, ignore, but I knew that She had that peace that I wanted. I saw her, my mom partied too, just like I did. And I saw her life physically change. I saw her go from being one person to being completely another person. And I knew that I needed what she had. I packed my bags that next morning when I woke up and I got on a Greyhound bus and I went to Georgia.
0: And and did you find the, like you cried out that one night, did you find the Lord that night or was it like later on when you got to Georgia?
3: I found the Lord that night. I believe that was that was the moment that the Lord started to transform my mind because I willingly laid it. I surrendered to him because I'd known who Jesus was. I had been to church. I'd heard the gospel. If you'd asked me if I knew Jesus during my addiction, I'd have told you yes, but I'd have been on my way to hell. I, I knew I needed a relationship. I had to surrender to him, and it was that night that I surrendered to him. So I went to Georgia, and my mom started discipling me. And it's crazy because I moved into the exact same room that I grew up in. I'd spent 18 years in that room wow. trying to get out of that town, and I went right back there, and God met me right there and just um, started to transform me and just put the most kind, amazing, biblical women in my life. I can remember walking down the aisle in Georgia because I, I wanted to make my, my profession of faith known. Yeah. And I went into this little rural Georgia town, southern baptist church teeny tiny about 40 women in there 40 you know men and women in there and these little old ladies and i'm covered in tattoos i had jet black hair with a red streak and it's all spiked up and i walked down that aisle and all i could think was they're gonna judge me they're gonna judge me they're gonna judge me and those women jumped up crying and they hugged my neck and they said we've been praying for you for 15 years wow and because my mom had been a part of that women's group and they they were they were praying for me and and every day they they never gave up hope. And um and they just they started really disciplining me and pouring into me.
0: But while Casey was in Georgia undergoing a spiritual transformation, Fred was still in Virginia crawling through the mess of his life. There was a strange paradox. Fred had been in and out of rehab and recovery programs and jail more times than he could keep track of. But even though Fred couldn't let go of his drugs for the last few months before Casey left, he would actually let his aunt and uncle take him to their church every Sunday. Maybe it was just for the free lunch, but his heart was still softening.
2: She left Richmond on a Greyhound to go to Georgia. Um, I knew I was getting ready to go to jail. I was probably two weeks out. I went to a motel over on um, Midlothian Turnpike, which is in a, um, in, in Richmond, and um I started tattooing, you know, out of the uh, hotel room, it's in a very seedy part of town. I had uh, people in and out of that room for two weeks straight, was smoking crack cocaine and doing tattoos. But when I went to jail, um, I really did not have a detox per se, I didn't go through withdrawals. So they, they had a chapel there at the jail I was at every other Thursday. And um, I went because I wanted to see some other guys in another pod. So normally we couldn't mingle, but at chapel you could. And I remember sitting in that chapel that day, and this guy came in with this very long beard. And I'm not even exaggerating. It was probably down to his waist. And uh, he preached uh, a message out of Acts. And what I what I noticed was not the message, but in what he was preaching, I knew that the man believed it. And I went back to my cell after that, and I found a Bible, and I haven't put it down since. I don't know what happened. I can't explain it to you. I believe that I came to Christ in a jail cell with not much fanfare, other than I had a ferocious appetite for the Word of God. Wow. <laughs> I knew that there was freedom in those words somewhere, and I found it. From that process, that that moment that I had with God that night on those cardboard boxes when I asked God to let me die, something was completely different in me, and I cannot really explain it. I think that um, I I started this process of sanctification, or God was starting to reveal himself to me in a way. um, Even though I dabbled some after that, I wanted something different. It's like I was hungering and thirsting for something different and i think when i heard the gospel preached by that preacher in the jail that that's when something magical happened yeah you know i heard the word preached and 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 i do believe it is the power of god to salvation and um i think god had tenderized my heart to a point where i was ready to receive the gospel yeah. like i had this peace come over me and i knew that something was not not something was Something, a part of me had died and it was something new growing in me. I got out six months later and I went back to that church that my aunt and uncle had been taking me to um, and gave my life publicly to Christ uh, the Sunday after I got out. So I got out on Friday and made a public confession on Friday. um, And I was not going to leave till he baptized me the following Sunday. But the weird, it's weird is that really, you know, the church was across the street from where I had been in the woods. Wow. it was directly across the street in a shopping center. Um, and then later on, I came to find out that the pastor that preached at that church was this the brother of the pastor that brought the message in the jail. The guy with the beard. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, I started seeing how God had orchestrated a lot of things. I'm grateful for the church there. He preached line by line through the Word of God, and that's how I learned how to preach God's Word, was listening to that man preach. Mm-hmm. Um, He preached the truth. He stood on the word of God and he held me accountable. And I'm not talking about just, hey, he called me once a week. Um, If he saw that I looked funny, he'd ask me to take a drug test. Did, Uh, Did you ever
0: slip back?
2: No, I have not picked up a drug since I gave my life to Christ. It's
0: unique in our ministry, but I praise God for it. Now, although Fred and Casey had fully committed their lives to the Lord, neither one knew that the other one had actually done that. They were living 500 miles apart in two separate states and hadn't kept up with each other. In fact, the last time they had seen each other, both of them were in the depths of their addiction and their relationship had been incredibly harmful and toxic. And as anyone who has ever worked in addiction recovery ministry will quickly point out, the last thing someone going through recovery should ever do is think about a romantic relationship. But just a few months into Fred's salvation and recovery, he apparently hadn't received the memo i was
2: reading um in first corinthians this is so romantic it is what it is baby (laughs) and you know i love you um and i was reading in there like where paul was talking about it's better for you to be single than um to be married and and you know before that our relationship had just been this back and forth let's have sex no accountability do what we want to do but i wanted to honor god and um, I called her mom and said, hey, I'd really like to talk to Casey.
3: And I said, tell him I'm not here. I'm done with that, because I'm moving on with my life. I, I, I had no, I did not want to get back together with him because I, I was like, no, I am following the Lord now. I'm doing things the right way, we're not going back there. Little did I know, I thought, he said, I, I found the Lord. He told my mom that, I'm like, he's lying. <laughs> And then it took several weeks of, like, God convicted me that if I can change you, I can change him. Oh, And so I, I took his call.
2: Yeah, so we started talking, and then um, I asked her to marry me, and she said yes. Oh, over the phone or what? Yeah, over the phone.
0: Over the phone.
2: Over the phone.
3: <laughs> <laughs> That's not the best part. He was on probation. I was
2: on probation, and— um.
3: He wasn't supposed to leave the state of Virginia.
2: So I tried to work with my probation officer. The The judge would not let me uh, go um, off of probation. I tried to get on unsupervised probation. They wouldn't allow me to do that. Um, I was on probation um, for a fight that we had gotten into years before, a physical altercation in a um, gas station parking lot, and the attendant had called the police, and um, I got in trouble. But I was in a blackout, a drug-induced stupor um i don't remember half of it but anyway i was on probation for that situation so i went to my pastor and i said hey i'm gonna marry casey and they didn't really know a lot about casey other than the past
0: Mm, yeah
2: they knew the the history and he was like ah man i think you're making a mistake and you know i had lied to her so many times and um I expressed that to him. I said, you know, I, I don't wanna I don't wanna lie to her now. I told her that I was gonna marry her and she said yes. Um so I said, I've gotta go. And he said, If you go, I'm gonna punch you in your face.
0: Your pastor told yeah. you this.
3: <laughs> No, he said, yeah. If yeah. if I weren't your pastor, I'd punch yeah. you dead in the face right now. Right. <laughs> but you know, in his defense, we'd say that to these guys too. Yes. We don't tell our story a lot because yeah. we don't want the guy we're the exception to the rule. We're like, this doesn't happen. Most people who use together don't don't end up married and following Jesus. They just don't.
2: But you know, I I got on the bus. You were still on probation. Still on probation. You got on the bus. And I don't mind telling you this. It's it's I got on the bus. Uh, went to uh, Sandersville, Georgia. Got married. Got back on the bus and came straight back. With your wife? Nope.
3: I hope our marriage is actually
0: legal.
2: <laughs> she stayed. She was teaching. Uh, She had gotten us a place. And so I worked for the next six to eight months to try to get off probation to get down there to live with her.
3: But it was a good time. But it was a good time. Because we were different people. You know, we were we were getting to know each other again yep. because we had known each other in our sin and in our drug addiction. And then for both of us, when we talked on the phone, we talked on the phone every day, every night. Yep. And when we talked on the phone, we talked about, let me tell you what I learned today. We talked about the Bible. We talked about Jesus. We talked about, you know, the things that we wanted to do Now, like we talked about our dreams, which is something we were never able to do together. We could never dream together on drugs. You know, you're just trying to make it to the next fix. And so we really got to, it really helped our relationship. I think that God knows what He's doing. God kept us apart so that we could grow individually in our walks with Him. And so then when He brought us back together, it was like, wow, wow, a new relationship. It was like He redeemed us separately and then He redeemed our relationship (laughs) in Him. And it's, it's, It's weird because it's like a completely, it's like, yeah, we've all, we've been together for 13 years, but the first, whatever, seven or completely half of it it is completely, it was a different relationship.
0: After working for eight months to get off probation, Fred realized he wasn't making any headway and he wasn't going to be allowed to leave the state either. If they wanted to live together as a married couple, then Casey would need to leave Georgia and come back to Virginia. And right as she did, God made clear a new calling he had for both of them to pursue.
3: So we decided when we got married, like I said, we started dreaming together. Mm. We decided that we were going to run as hard after Jesus as we had ran the streets. Mm. We were going to follow after Christ the way that we were following after the drug man. And so we just just started running after Jesus together. And we decided that we wanted to go back to the same people. We both had moments and times of homelessness. We were homeless together for a while, yep. living in and out of hotel rooms, and living cars. in cars. and And we decided, you know... When you have the answer to life, when you have the answer to freedom from addiction, and it's not the 12 steps and it's not psychiatry or psychology or drug maintenance or whatever the human wisdom has told you it is, when you find out what that answer is and you experience that freedom, it was like, we got to tell everybody, all those people that are struggling with the same thing that we were struggling with, we've got to tell them where the answer is and the answer is Jesus. So God laid it on our heart, though, when we when I came back to start going downtown. We would just buy about 20 sausage, egg, and cheese biscuits and we on a Saturday, and we would go down there, and we would hand them out, and we would pray with people. How can I pray with you? What do you need? Is there anything you need? Do you need shoes? Do you need a jacket? Do you need a sleeping bag? And so then we started really trying. We'd go back to our church, and we'd talk to people about, these are the needs that we saw this week and ask people if they could meet those needs. And this and so, is just
0: homeless people. You're just, just homeless random people. people, We're people. We're We're homeless. On, homeless. Downtown Richmond. Where I was homeless.
3: Where he, yeah. And we would just walk around downtown Richmond and talk to people. And we started forming relationships and we started praying with those people and we started getting to know those people and we started sharing the gospel with those people and meeting their physical needs. Um, but every time we'd go down there every week and it was like, man, Calvin's just as drunk as he ever was. You know, nothing's changing. Yeah, we really would talk about it. And it's like, well, it wasn't the sleeping bag that saved me. It wasn't the food that saved me. It wasn't the jacket or the shoes. It was Jesus Christ. It was the gospel that saved us. Mm. And so, you know, faith come by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So we started a Bible study down there where we started meeting at 17th Street Farmer's Market in downtown Richmond.
2: I think in that process, uh, I struggled again with my calling. Um, I felt worthless. Um, I didn't feel like uh, people took me seriously, um, and then you know it's always the word of God for me. Like I found First Corinthians, and in chapter one it said, "Not many noble, wise, not many strong are called." God uses the foolish things of the world. Um, when I read that,
0: it gave me purpose. I knew that God could use somebody like me. It was 2016 by this point, and Fred had a job working at a paper mill, which is a miracle story of its own, considering his criminal and drug record and Casey was working at a coffee shop. But as you can tell, their real passion was working with the homeless, and truly it was a calling. Their Sunday morning Bible study would start out small, but soon it would grow in unexpected ways. Coming up after the break. As a teenager, I had so many friends whose lives were transformed by attending a Worldview Academy leadership camp. For many of them, it was the highlight of their summer, because it was such a spiritually engaging experience. And today, Worldview Academy's mission continues. If you have a student between 13 to 18 and you care about equipping them with biblical truth so that they're prepared to stand firm and engage with the culture, then Worldview Academy is what you're looking for. Worldview Academy's week-long summer intensives cover topics in apologetics, servant leadership, and evangelism, all while building deep friendships with like-minded students. Your student will engage with 25 hours of interactive teaching, addressing questions like how do I know that the Bible is true? Does God really exist? Who defines what is right or wrong? And what difference does that make in my life? Since 1996, over 42,000 students have called this one of the best weeks of their life, and with 18 summer intensives all across the country, there's certain to be one near you. Learn more and get 10% off your student's camp registration as a COMPELLED listener by using the promo code COMPELLED at WorldView.org. Register for camp today at WorldView.org while spots are still available. And remember to get 10% off using the promo code COMPELLED. Summer is here, and so is the chance to take a breather from school. And there's a decent chance that the subject your student is most excited to take a break from is math. But it doesn't have to be that way, especially if you're using CTC math. Their focus is helping your student learn at the pace that's best for them. Every lesson is fully online with interactive questions and clear explanations. And their video tutorials take difficult concepts and break them down into digestible ideas. But here's the crazy part. They have a 12 month money back guarantee. That's right, you can use CTC Math for an entire year. And if you don't like it, or it didn't work out for you, or if you're just unethical, which as a compelled listener, I hope you're not, then you just shoot them an email and tell them that you like your money back and they'll gladly refund your entire purchase, no questions asked. There is literally no risk for an entire year. You can't beat that. Because their heart is to serve your family. That's why they sponsor Compel, so that we can continue creating stories that will bless and encourage your family. And they want to do the same for your students' math needs. So whether summer is a time for your student to catch up, keep up, or move ahead, CTC Math is there. Learn more at ctcmath.com. Again, that's ctcmath.com. Now, as Casey pointed out, their personal experience with homelessness and addiction uniquely situated them to understand the community they were serving. Not only that, Fred had a lot of personal context with recovery programs in the area.
2: So like the first ministry uh, the guy called us to do um, was the Healing Place, which was a men's home. Um, it had 200 men in it. It's the program that I went through that I kept getting kicked out of, in and out of, in and out of. But, but what God convicted me of was uh, it was 12-step based, and there was no gospel. There was no word of God. It wasn't a Christian program. It wasn't a Christian program. It was secular. And I knew the people, the staff, so well. Um, I went there one day, and I said, hey, um, if I was able to pick these men up on a Sunday, give them a meal, and let them come to service— would you count that as an AA meeting? See, there you have to get an AA meeting every day. Yeah. So the uh, director of that program agreed to allow me to count that as an AA meeting. So uh, that, that went from like zero to like 20, 30, sometimes 40 guys coming on a Sunday morning to hear the gospel preached.
3: Another pastor came alongside Fred and kind of laid it on his heart. You, you need to be preaching. And to this point, he had been like, I'm not, that's not me. That's not my thing. Yeah.
2: I finally convinced him to come downtown uh and just see what god was doing and he said you need to start preaching to these people and i was like no that's why you're here you know that's why i brought you down here that's your job (laughs) (laughs) and he kind of uh forcefully put me out front and um it was amazing it's been amazing we went from those four guys to sometimes 200. people started coming from the businesses and the section 8 housing a lot of people started to consider that Sunday afternoon their church family. I was preaching down there one Sunday night, and this uh, this guy came up and handed me his heroin and his needles in the middle of me preaching, and said, "I want this Jesus that you keep preaching about." And um, um, it was it was a defining moment in my life. Um, and uh, I took accountability. I went like two blocks away, he broke up the drugs, and threw them in a, a trash can. It was hard, uh, he had no ID. A young guy, he had graduated in Ivy League College, was homeless, strung out on the street. Um, when you looked at him, you knew that he didn't belong where he was at. He stayed sober for a period of time, coming, kept coming to our Tuesdays. We do Tuesday night and Sunday night downtown. He kept coming, seemed like he was doing well. Uh, and then he came back a couple weeks later and said, look, I can't stay sober out of here.
3: He wanted yeah. help. And he said, I can't, they won't take me because I don't have insurance. They won't take me because I don't have an ID. They won't take me because of my background. I've got a felony and we, God laid it on our hearts that we need to have something that will take anybody. We want a program that if somebody wants help, they can get it if they're willing. And anybody who's, who's been in drug addiction, felonies are not unusual. No insurance, not unusual, no ID. That's not unusual.
2: From him to right now is where the vision came from for some type of facility, uh, campus, something where these men could
0: respond to the gospel as it's preached and then go somewhere and be discipled. That was the start of Fred and Casey's vision for what would eventually become the Fix ministry. But there didn't appear to be any clear path to making that a reality. Fred and Casey were pretty much living hand to mouth, and they didn't have the financial means or connections to set up a recovery program. But a week later, a familiar but unlikely person would open the doors for their next steps. Joe is the sheriff of the whole county. Joe
2: McLaughlin chased me around for years.
3: His son came and raided my house looking yeah. for him.
2: So and, father, and who pulled him over. Yeah. yeah. So they yeah. both knew me very well. Yeah. So uh, he was standing in the, uh, the parking lot of a bank, walked over. I said, hey, Joe, God has really laid it on my heart to start a drug treatment program. I want to talk to you about it. And he looked at me and said, Fred, I'm in the middle of a bank robbery, and I don't have time to talk to you right now. Now Now's not the time. (laughs) (laughs) So I thought I'd blown it, you know. (laughs) He he seemed really irritated with me, you know. And I was like, man. uh, A couple weeks went by, he called me, and he said, look, you know, I want to talk to you about that drug program. I want to hear more about it. So I met with him. I told him. I laid it out. Uh, He said, well, I'm going to get some people together, and we're going to want you to talk to him." So the next meeting um, is where I met uh, Pastor Jason and some other church leadership in the community. And I cast the vision and all of them um, were excited. And I, I just couldn't believe that God had used me. Mm. Um, so uh, I was just, just amazed by what God had orchestrated, put together, um, and all these parts came together.
3: God put the right people in the right places and we started a, a board a board for the fix even though we didn't have a house yet we just said we know this is our vision we all have the same vision we all want to see that there are people need help people need help from this opioid crisis and the answer is jesus we all came to that agreement and we formed a board and we started praying about it talking about it we started looking at multi-million dollar properties and the real estate agent's like how are you going to pay for this god god's going to pay for it yeah <laughs> we didn't and have they, a dime in the bank they we wouldn't didn't call us back. what we're going to do um but the Lord started opening doors. And that's when my mother-in-law, Vicki, came to us. And she said, this is your inheritance. You know, you've wasted enough time. Why don't you use this for what God has called you to do? And that's this house. It's been an exciting, terrifying, scary, invigorating, amazing ride. Fred and I lived in this house with these guys the first six well, first eighteen months. Yep. And the first six months we didn't get paid. Actually for almost a year. We didn't make a dime. I was working at a coffee shop at our old church. That's all the money that we had. And we lived here, we ate the same food that the guys did and just to watch God provide every step of the way. And there was nothing that we did because none of us, we're all just like, okay God, you do what you want to do. Nothing that we did. We didn't have the expertise. We didn't have the knowledge. We just Trusted and believed that God would do it, and He has. He's cont- and that's every day is like that. Every day God shows up in ways that I never imagined, exceeding and abundantly.
2: It's funny. I, I we had the board in place. Uh, we got some great men of God on that board, um, and then uh, Jason uh, called me and said they shut the ranch down. And um, he said I got. Some guys that have nowhere to
0: go. Quick clarification. The Jason Fred is referring to is Jason Swayze. And I actually interviewed Jason and his wife the same day that I interviewed Fred and Casey. And their story, God willing, will be in our next season of Compelled. Jason had been the director of a Christian recovery program on a ranch in Virginia. And they had close to 50 men in the program when it abruptly shut down. And he said, I got some guys that got nowhere to go.
2: I don't know what to do. And um, I opened this house up uh, a little prematurely.
0: Very prematurely.
2: <laughs> I was like, I can't let them go on the street. So we we brought the guys in um, with no food, no beds. Uh, it was just us. And um, I called uh, somebody who is now a very huge part of what we do.
3: He's uh, always pa- been a huge part yeah, of what we do. Pastor
2: did. Neil, uh, he, he has a huge food bank. Um, and I said, hey, man, I don't you don't know me. I don't know you. But I just opened this men's home up and I got nothing to feed them. So we met him on the side of the road and he filled our whole trunk up with food, frozen meats, uh, vegetables. Um, and that got us through about two days. But, <laughs> um, and then we got some blow up mattresses and everybody was camped out for a little while. But it, it was it was a cool struggle. It was. Um, I think Casey and I uh, thrived in it but just because of what we had been through. Mm. Thank God had prepared us for that time we were here. Me and her slept in that back bedroom with our kids for a while, you know, just discipled the guys.
0: As our conversation came to a close, I asked Fred and Casey what they would say if they could go back in time and confront their younger selves while still in their addictions.
3: I'm not sure if there's anything I could say. <laughs> I mean, I hate to say that, but I just don't, I know how I was. And you know, my mom did try. My mom poured Jesus into me. My mom shared the gospel. My mom, my mom modeled what it looks like. and 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 it was such a beautiful thing because she didn't grow up in church. And but when she went all in, she went all in. I mean, so much so that, like you said, my my family, the rest of my family thought she was insane. You go to church all the time. She was the worship leader at our church. And I don't know that I could have said anything to change my mind. I just think I had to go through the pain that I had to go through. And one of the things that I always tell families who are ministering to other people is pain is a catalyst for change. Mm. Pain, it does something. There's a purpose in pain, and I needed the pain. And and I don't regret the 35 years I spent, and I hate to say it that way, but I don't regret the 35 years I spent lost and broken and in the world because that's what it took for me to be broken enough and humble enough to surrender my life to Christ. It took me being just destitute, and I'm okay with that because now I have life, eternal life.
2: I would absolutely talk about... Um choices. You know, when you're young, you don't think that uh, the choices you're making then would affect you later. The other one is, uh, it's like, I always tell the guys, um, Satan shows you the beginning of something, but never the end. Beginning is always fun and congevial and no consequences. But Satan never showed me the homelessness, the, the pain the pain I inflicted on others, the consequences of the sin. Yeah. And then the, the other thing is compromise. I knew things were wrong, but I would continue to t- make these little compromises to where I, I got to a point where I turned around and I don't even know how I got there. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like things I said I would never do, at some point I ended up doing them. Yeah. But it all started with these little, tiny, simple compromises so I, I think for me, you know, talking to uh, young people about choices and compromise is huge. It's it's important to know that you, you need to be a God pleaser, not a man pleaser. Mm. Because I think a lot of young people think they have to do certain things to fit into certain groups of people. And that's just a lie. It's been a wild, amazing journey for us. And we're grateful to God for where he brought us out of and where he's placed us. Amen.
0: Yeah. Hey, I appreciate you guys. No.
3: Thank you. Thank you so You're much. Oh, amazing.
0: Today, Fred and Casey work every single day with addicts and the homeless. And as you can tell, the reason they can relate so well with this community is because they were once there themselves. You know, something Casey said surprised me. She said that she wouldn't undo the first 35 years of her life because she knows that's what it took for her to realize her brokenness and accept the salvation of God. That the void in her life couldn't be fixed with the bottle, pills, or men. That Jesus, and only Jesus, was the one true, lasting fix. If you or a loved one are struggling with addiction, then please don't give up. God loves you, he cares for you intimately, and he wants to see you restored, just like Fred and Casey. Jesus is the fix. Reach out to your local church and ask for help or check out our show notes for this episode, and we'll include links to some ministries and resources that Fred and Casey recommend. And of course, everyone listening should check out Fred and Casey's ministry. It's called The Fix Ministry. Their website is thefixministry.org. Again, that's thefixministry.org. You can also find a link to their website and photos of Fred and Casey and our show notes at our website, compelledpodcast.com. And if you found this episode to be a blessing, then please take 30 seconds and just share it with someone that you know. Text, email, social media, or whatever else works for you. This episode was edited by Zach Fowler and Will Jackson. Our media assistant is Ethan Adams and our associate producer is Sarah Hastings. Special thanks to my friend Gabriel LaFont for filming this interview in Virginia. I can't wait to share the video version with you guys very soon. Stay tuned for a sneak peek from next week's episode with Hormoz Shariat. Hormoz once chanted death to America in the streets of Tehran, but after doubts crept into his heart about Islam and his wife found the Lord, he was forced to reckon with what he truly believed about God. I'm your host, Paul Hastings, and you've been listening to Compelled. We'll be back with another compelling story next Tuesday.
1: In 79, as a student, I was on the streets of Tehran. I was shouting, death to America, death to America, because everybody was doing And we wanted to topple Shah. As young people, we wanted to change the government. And I was saying, death to America. But in my heart, I was saying, not yet, please. I want to go there. (laughs) This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there.